Friends, welcome to Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Word on Fire is an apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization, using media both old and new to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. Today, we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each one of us. Peace be with you. What an embarrassment of riches we have in our Lenten readings. That's true season after season in, in Lent. We just have wonderful biblical readings. So last week we heard what I call the greatest story ever told, the parable of the prodigal son. And this week we have the story of the woman caught in adultery from the Gospel of John, a tale that's beguiled Christians and non-Christians now for two millennia. So let's take a careful look at this wonderful story. Notice first, please, how it commences. With the journey of Jesus from the Mount of Olives into the temple. Now, those who've been to the Holy Land know that Mount of Olives is to the east of the temple. And if you cross over, you then go down into what they call the Kidron Valley, and then you go back up to the temple. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, that's just a little bit of historical detail that Jesus came from the Mount of Olives down the valley and up to the temple. But you got to remember what a first century Jewish audience would have taken in because they would have remembered the prophecy of Ezekiel regarding the corruption and restoration of the holy temple. Remember, Ezekiel says that because of its corruption, temple became so unclean that the Shekinah, that means the glory of Yahweh, left the temple and moved east up over the Mount of Olives. So think of this great image, devastating, devastating image of the glory of Yahweh, which is the whole reason the temple was holy in the first place. The glory gets up, it rises up, and it leaves the temple and moves east over the Mount of Olives. You say, okay, well, so what? Well, here's the so what. What we see in Jesus' itinerary is the journey of Yahweh back to his temple. Isn't that terrific in John? So Jesus coming up over the Mount of Olives, now going the other way, back toward the temple, and he comes into his temple. It means the glory of the Lord has returned to that place and has made it holy again. Now, with that in mind, we can read this story with much um, uh, clearer vision because we'll see what John is presenting is a contrast between the corruption of the temple, the reason the glory of God left, and its proper purpose, what happens when the glory of Yahweh returns. That, I think, is the interpretive key. And see, too often we approach the story, we don't even pay attention to the opening lines, but they provide the interpretive framework. So here's what I mean. What are the scribes and Pharisees doing as the story begins? They are perfectly exemplifying the corruption of law and religious ritual because they're using those things precisely for the persecution of the poor 
and the exercise of their own power. That's what bugged Ezekiel. That's what bugged Jeremiah and Isaiah and the rest of them. What is the proper purpose of law, sacrifice, ritual, etc.? Well, it's always to bring people closer to God, to correct what needs correcting, to facilitate friendship between creature and creator. So the temple is a place of sacrifice, to be sure, because sacrifice is a kind of cleansing or purging process. But the whole purpose of law, ritual, and temple is to bring divinity and humanity together. You know, so look back at the Old Testament. Is, is the law clear and its demands sometimes harsh? Well, yeah. Precisely in the manner of a coach who demands a good deal from his players. Or an orchestra conductor who, who demands a lot of his young musicians. I think of all my years of playing sports as a kid, I remember a handful of coaches. Invariably, they were the toughest coaches. They were the coaches who were, who were toughest on us. They're the ones I remember. They're the ones who taught me how to play properly. God does not want us to settle for second best. And so, through the law, he's sometimes a pretty tough, demanding coach. Now, can the law and discipline be used in an aggressive or domineering way? Yeah, sure. Think again of a teacher or a coach who was, you know, just plain cruel, who was using his knowledge of the subject and his authority to hurt and humiliate his charges. Now, you know what I mean. I can think, I won't name them, think of a few teachers and coaches who I thought were just kind of abusing their power and authority. Or think of a, a police officer or a judge, someone who uses the knowledge of the law in a similarly corrupt way. This will give you a rather clear idea of what made the temple and its denizens corrupt in the eyes of the great prophets. Now, lest we think this is all very distant and abstract with no relation to ourselves, consider the way that we can use our knowledge of God's law to hurt others and not to liberate them. We gossip, we scapegoat, we all do that. We blame, right? And what do we do? We convince ourselves that we're not just working out our personal hangups. We're following the divine law, and we're pointing out to others their problems and violations. Yeah, sure we are. <laughs> you know, very often, we're using the law precisely in the corrupt way that it was used uh, in the temple. So listen now as the story gets underway. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And later on they say, we caught her in the very act of adultery. Well, let that sink in for a second. <laughs> where, where were these people positioned? What were they looking at as they caught her in the very act of adultery? These were people who were carefully looking for someone they could blame. They're doing this as an act of love to help her grow in the spiritual life. Give me a break. They're doing it to attack her, to humiliate her. We know it because having arrested her, what do they do? They drag her out. Imagine anything more humiliating for the woman 
first of all, caught in the very act of adultery, how, how humiliating that is. But then she can't just slink away and hide. They drag her out and make her stand in the middle of the crowd. I mean, how incomparably cruel and insensitive. And what do they say? Hey, well, according to the law, we're the defenders of the law. We're in the place of the law here in the temple. Moses told us what to do. They're using their knowledge of the law to hurt this woman. But then we see even more, not just to hurt her, but to hurt Jesus himself. Because what are they doing here? but backing the Lord into an impossible corner. If he says, oh, no, let her go, they'll say, you don't love the law. If, they, if he says, yeah, go through with it, kill her. They say, look at this, this cruel, unjust man who's talking peace, but he's acting violently. So they've, they've caught him, it seems. See, what John is doing so cleverly here, I think, is he's showing us in, in one fell swoop, the corruption of law, ritual, temple on full display. It's like in one little uh, uh, gesture, he's showing us everything wrong with the temple. Everything, listen, that made the Shekinah of the Lord get up and leave and, and exit by way of, um, of the Mount of Olives. But now... See, we are meant to watch Jesus because he's the glory of the Lord returned to the temple. So we're meant to see in him what the temple, law, ritual look like when the glory of Yahweh has returned, has inhabited them once again. Jesus bends down and writes on the ground. The only time, by the way, in the Gospels he's ever depicted as writing anything, which I think is fascinating. St. Augustine speculated he was writing the sins of all those who were blaming the woman. Wonderful suggestion. Who knows? Maybe it's true. Then he stands up and utters, of course, one of the most famous lines in the whole New Testament tradition. Let the one without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. What do we hear now in this magnificent line? We hear that one of the prime purposes of the law is to make us humble. Now, you see what I'm driving at here. What are they doing with the law? They're not allowing it to, to make them humble. They're using it to humiliate somebody else. And again, fellow sinners, brothers and sisters, we all do this whether it's through gossip or it's through blaming, we all do this. We use the law not to humble ourselves, like, boy, I, I'm, I'm falling so far short of what God wants. I use it to humiliate others. You know, think of the best golfers in the world or the very best violinists. Both have deeply drawn in the rules and laws of their respective disciplines. And therefore, both, more than anyone else, realize how, how far they fall from where they should be. Do you ever listen to interviews with golfers after a round where they shoot like 69, which is, of course, for non-golfers, a brilliant score. 
And oh, yeah, I did this wrong. And oh, I missed that approach. And yeah, my putting was bad today. Well, that's because they've so internalized the law that the law has humbled them in a good way. Or a violinist that you know, gives a brilliant performance, but, but all he can think of is, oh, well, I, I could have been so much better. They don't lord it over beginners. They, they don't humiliate beginners. They allow the law to humble themselves. And then we watch Jesus in relation to the woman. The temple was always meant to be a place of mercy, a place where sins are forgiven, where the friendship with God is reestablished. Well, Jesus is the new temple. He is the return of Yahweh's glory to the temple. Therefore, what do we see in him? In contradistinction to the scribes and Pharisees, we see mercy within mercy within mercy. We see God reaching out to the sinner in non-condemnation. But now finally, mind you please, this is not, to use Bonhoeffer's great phrase, cheap grace. The Lord reaches out in mercy, yes indeed, but then he says, do not sin anymore. See, watch, he's not denigrating the law, but he's using the law to bring a sinner back to life. All that remained, Augustine said, was miseria and misericordia, mercy and misery. The temple, Jesus, the new temple, is meant to be the place where those two meet. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.